I'm Steve McLeod and this is Bootstrapped, the podcast for people running bootstrapped software companies or wanting to run one. I run two bootstrapped software products, Feature Upvote, which lets your customers vote on ideas to improve your product, and Sabre Feedback, which offers a feedback widget you can add to your website. Follow along as I learn from talking to other bootstrappers and experts, and just maybe you'll learn something too. I'm joined today by Craig Hewitt, founder of Castos, a podcast hosting and analytics platform. Welcome, Craig. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me back on. Back on. That's right. You are no stranger to this show. I looked this up this morning and I see that you guest co-hosted with me on episodes 111 to 115 when I was just getting started with this new iteration of the podcast. But let's assume nothing, Craig. Let's assume that people listening don't know anything about Castos and you. So why don't you tell us a short history what Castos is, when you started it, and more importantly, why you got into this particular business. Yeah, so Castos is a podcast hosting analytics platform. We also have a professional services arm we call Castos Productions. It has been around for about four and a half years. And you know, at this point, we have kind of thousands of customers and a team of 13 people right now. Got into the business actually from my first kind of bootstrap business called Podcast Motor, which, which is now kind of what we call Castos Productions and was presented with the opportunity to acquire a WordPress plugin called Seriously Simple Podcasting. And so we did that from its its creator and then built the original version of the Castos platform to connect into that. So you know, folks can manage their podcast from their WordPress site, but, but connect to the Castos platform. Since then, we've kind of opened the Castos platform up to where you can use it like you would use a Simplecast or a Libsyn or whatever as just a place to manage your podcast independently, or you can use it along with WordPress. And why podcasting? What was the attraction? Geez, it's just kind of the place I landed. I mean, I started my own podcast, golly, six and a half years ago now, like forever. And I just kind of quickly saw that like the whole process of editing and show notes and publishing and promotion and all of this is just a hassle, right? And it takes forever and is hard and time consuming. So that's where the podcast motor business came from, as I said, like, hey, I bet there are people that value their time more than I do. Uh, at the time, I was, you know, had a day job and was doing this nights and weekends. And, and so we, we kind of created that as a productized service. Folks like Brian Castle talk about productized services a lot as a really great way to go from, you know, having a day job to doing this nights and weekends to, you know, supporting your, your family and everything. And that's what podcast motor did. And then just kind of being in the business and seeing the opportunity for what now is Castos was was kind of like a relatively obvious next step, I guess. Okay. And your background is, I believe, not as a developer. Correct. Um, what, what are your skills that you brought into the business? I think that's debatable, but <laughs> <laughs> I have a sales background and I think I have a pretty good marketing approach, I guess, not even like a marketing mind, but, but I have a good sense for marketing. And so that's where I spend a lot of my time these days is like a little bit of product. I hate to use the term visionary, but product direction and then you know we have a team of developers. We recently brought on a, an engineering manager. You might call him like a scrum master, but somebody to kind of organize and run the development team. And that's been a really great addition to the team here in just the last couple of weeks, actually. But then I spend most of my time on on kind of what I would guess the operation side. So support, success, marketing, and sales. Okay, so coming in as a non-developer, you acquired a product that already existed, so you didn't have to face that thing of making something out of nothing with a skill set you didn't yet have. Yeah. Okay, I could go into a lot of detail because there's a lot of things I want to ask there, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. 
what we're going to talk about is that you're moving your business from bootstrap to mostly bootstrap to one that's taking investment, a theme I've been talking about a little bit on the podcast lately. Craig, am I going to have to do what I did with Moritz Dowsinger recently and ask you to hand in your bootstrapper badge? Yeah, I guess. I don't know what the threshold is over which you're not considered bootstrapped anymore. But so we have taken some funding in the past. We were part of the Tiny Seed Accelerator program about two years ago, where where we took a small investment from Tiny Seed, which was a really great experience. You know, the resources to allow us to grow and kind of live in the future from a revenue and expense perspective. And then just recently closed a second round of financing about 750,000 that that is really letting us do do just a lot more and i think that's what bringing financing finances into a company like ours does is takes us from you know 13 to 15 or 16 people at once and let us do some things that that would just take longer to do if we if we stayed more bootstrapped than we are now okay let's go back to tiny seed you mentioned that you took a small investment there I, I've asked you before exactly what it was and you weren't able to say, but the Tiny Seed website says under the current rules they or the current guidelines, they give you about 120,000 US dollars per founder and you're a single founder. Yep. And in return, they get 10 to 12% equity under a special arrangement. I guess there's a little bit of a maneuver there and you came in before they had those rules, but this just helps us all understand where you were beforehand. Yeah. So you've built this company from nothing to 13 people on a total outside investment of $120,000. Well, off that order of magnitude, plus your own resources. Yep. Have I summed that up well? That's it. Yep. Okay. But now you're taking in an extra 750000 You didn't say what currency, but I'm assuming we're talking US dollars again? Correct. Yeah. Three quarters of a million dollars. That's... It's not a substantial amount of money by what you see in the Silicon Valley news, but for a bootstrapper, well, to me, that's a lot of money to have that come into my business. I I don't know what I would do with it I, <laughs> or even how to go about raising it. So tell me how your business was in the days, weeks, months before taking that money, how you were feeling about it. Yeah. So I, I think to kind of take a half a step back, you mentioned Moritz in, in the episode that you had with him. And I, I was listening to that like last week and I said, this is something that just isn't talked about a lot in the bootstrapper world. And for me, even going into this process was was just like this really vague, opaque process and thing that we're looking at doing. And, and that's why I thought it might be interesting to come on to kind of dovetail into the conversation you had with Moritz to where he you know took some money from Ernest to the process I went through of like, kind of raising around on my own in air quotes, because because it's quite different, you know, us joining Tiny Seed, Moritz and, and Ernest is kind of you go and you make an application to this one thing, and they give you this chunk of money. And that's great. Raising around kind of independently, frankly, was really, really hard. <laughs> and I was surprised that it was so hard. But I think that's just just how it is. Like it's it's a big kind of sales process, right of of you and your team and your vision and the company and, and the product and the traction you have to to people who think that you can do a lot more with those funds than you can do without them. And that's really kind of the, the whole premise of the thing to, to simplify it. But to your question, like going into the process of, of raising the money, we were, we were definitely still growing. We were profitable for a lot of last year. And we decided to kind of take some of those profits and reinvest in the business in kind of the, the last quarter of last year and into this year to where we started, you know, burning some money, but definitely had the had the ability to rein that in and become kind of sustainable again if we wanted to. But we really saw this opportunity 
in the private podcasting aspect of the of the market. So private podcasting, think of it like a membership site for in audio, right? So you have a membership site or a course or a community online like Bootstrapped, right? That you could offer content only to those members that's not publicly available to everybody like this show is. You know, it's on iTunes or Apple mm-hmm. Podcasts and Spotify. A private podcast is only accessible to certain individuals. And so the applications we see of that are to that, you know, we call it the maker community, right? So people with courses and online communities and membership sites and things like that, but also for companies who want to offer podcast content internally to their employees. So think about like continuous development, learning, education, employee engagement, sales enablement, all this kind of stuff. Companies are increasingly, I think, tired of Zoom calls and having their employees be kind of strapped to their laptop. And and so we we use a term and we hear our customers use this term a lot of like a step away experience, right? So companies want their employees to be able to engage with their content in a way that that's like mobile first, on demand, and they can consume it, you know, anywhere and anyhow, anytime they want. And that's what we're doing. So for example, a CEO of a small company or a medium-sized company could record a, a weekly summary of like 15 minutes and put it on a private podcast and everybody listens rather than everybody having an all hands meeting type of thing, I guess is a, exactly. what immediately comes to mind as a possible use. Exactly. Yep. Okay. You used a bit of terminology earlier on, you raised around and this actually might not be, the meaning of this might not be apparent. What does it mean to raise around? Is it money from more than one investor? Yep. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's just the term I've always heard. And so that's what I use. Yeah. Around in our case, we had a combination of individuals, a couple of corporate investors, like strategic investors, I would say, and some of the tiny seeds investors participated as well. Okay. Where I come from around is when you buy everybody at the table in the pub drinks. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) that's what I was thinking of. uh, To raise around is quite a different meaning here. Hey, are you allowed to say who, who the investors are? Is there anybody notable or is that private confidential? Yeah, I mean, on the on the corporate side, we, we can say that the, the two kind of corporate investors were uh, Yoast, so Yoast SEO, really popular WordPress plugin for SEO, and Automatic, so kind of the, the parent company of WordPress and the company behind WordPress.com. Oh, and how on earth did you manage to, to pitch to them or get them involved? Just from people I know, honestly, like, uh, you know, oh. just been in the space so much and talking and really, I think, like, kind of being open with, with a lot of people in the in the investing and in the kind of private equity world and in the WordPress world and kind of just chatted with them openly about where we are and what we're looking to do and and the opportunities kind of unraveled from there. Okay. And the other investors are all private individuals? Yep. Okay. And you said a total of 750000 US dollars. Are you able to say roughly what proportion of that was corporate and what wasn't? I can't, getting... no. Okay. No. Yeah. <laughs> what do you intend to do with the money? Yeah, so it's so it's all swimming pool. Buy buy some rounds. No, I mean, well, I mean, what one of the things that we're doing right now is is hiring a sales team. So, and that's really the big drive of all of this, and the you know the really the premise under which we raise the money is is we see this opportunity in the the private podcasting space, both for the maker crowd and for the corporate use, and and we just we want to put as much behind that as we can, and the. The product is already there and we've bootstrapped, mostly bootstrapped our way to, to getting the product where it is. And we have a lot more work to do on that. But but that is all kind of, the pieces are in place there and it just takes time 
to do that. But really, we we need dedicated salespeople to to focus on moving this forward. And that's the big part of what we're doing with the money right now is is hiring in the process of hiring two account executives, salespeople, and really building out the sales process and pipeline and, and all of that. And really kind of starting from almost scratch, which is which is cool but challenging. Mm-hmm. Is this intended to be the first of several rounds of raising money or you're hoping to keep this as the, the only major investment you take? I don't know, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think that for the same reasons we wanted to raise money right now is we think with this money, we can do more good for the company than if we didn't take this money. And, and that's kind of the bet or the premise. If this starts to show really good results, then I think the logical thing would be to raise more money and just do more good like we're doing, just amplify this path we're on or accelerate the path we're on. And so, you know, if we kind of prove out the thesis from here, then I think we will raise more. And that would be that would be kind of the smart thing for us and for our investors is to raise more money to just grow the company bigger and faster along the same lines and along in the same way that we're doing it now. And I think that's the big thing is raising the money. This is a big kind of friends and family kind of round. It wasn't like a priced round or anything. And so we have a lot of flexibility in in how we run the company. I, I think once you raise another round or a priced round, like an a series A or something, you are pretty committed to you know running running the company in a certain way and raising more money in the future and planning for an exit in a couple of years. At this point, that's not necessarily like how we have to do things. If that's not the way you have to do things, then what's in it for your investors? Do, are they getting payout already from profits of any that may assist? Or are they thinking long-term? In which case, what is long-term? Surely they, they want their money back and more someday. Yeah, so similar to your conversation with Maurice, we raised the money via a safe note. So it's a pretty standard Y Combinator template that's, you know, it's, it's a promise of future equity at some kind of event, either when we raise a round, like a priced round, or if we were to sell the business. And so that's what the investors are looking forward to. One of those two things will certainly happen in the next you know, five years. Okay. If we're really successful at this and, and think that we can do more with the path that we're on, I think raising more money seems to make sense. Or if we're doing so good that somebody thinks that the company is really attractive, then you know, we would entertain that. Okay. Are the investors breathing down your neck already? Trying to think how you do things <laughs> and criticizing decisions you make? No, not at all. I mean, they're fantastic. I, I think that Again, like the way we raise this money, this is a pretty low stress for, for like having investors. This is a pretty low stress situation. If you go to raise a seed round and a series A and a series B, then yeah, you're you're expected to perform in a really specific way, but we're not there yet. Yeah. Okay. So if you want to take uh, the summer easy to work half time or something, it's not anybody saying, but wait, I want my money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I put that pressure on myself to where like, I can't, I can't take a typical like <laughs> six week European vacation over the summer, but I don't think if we had, you know, a couple down months that anybody would be yelling or anything like that. So can I assume the money is safely in your bank account, in the company bank account? Yeah. And in the company when, bank account. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you, when you saw those digits come in there, what was the feeling you had in the immediate day or two afterwards? Yeah. I, I think a lot of kind of relief, right? Just like, okay, we can now we can go on the path that we want to go down and we don't have to and I say don't have to worry about money but but like we can with a lot of confidence go do these handful of things we want to do and, and and focus on that and not worry about you know what the revenue looks like for for the next few months so you mentioned already that uh, 
it was hard selling. I guess you're used to selling $99 per month SaaS products, which is quite different from selling uh, a stake of your company. Was it very time consuming and distracting and affected your business in any way negatively? Absolutely. To to the first part, if it affected the business negatively, I, I guess it had to just because so much of my time and mental space went into this whole process. And the hard part really was, and again, I think Maurice touched on this, it is like when, and and like frequent co-host of the show, Ed, Ed Freyfogel is is a friend and and kind of helped me a lot in, in this process. But it seems, and it was our experience that that with raising the money, until you have that that kind of lead person or lead investor that really is a signal to everybody else that like, hey, this is going to happen. Somebody with a lot of clout and a really strong reputation is bought in that the rest of the people don't want to follow. And so it just it was surprising to me how much of a social signal and social kind of cat and mouse almost this is to, to where like, hey, yeah, maybe I'm interested, but who else is investing? Like you got that a lot. And to me, that was surprising because I just look at it and say, like, here are the numbers, right? Here's where we are. This is what we want to do. This is, you know, a calculated bet, right, for investors. But like all of the data is here. And whether this person or that person agreed and invested shouldn't be the decision that a bunch of other people make. But that just seems to be how it is. And so the challenge was kind of getting over that first hump. And when you did, then the rest of it actually was quite easy. But getting that first you know, decent sized commitment was kind of a challenge. Was that one of the two corporate investors that was the one it that was. led the others? Yeah. Yep. It's amazing. If it's buying a $10 consumer product, we want social proof. And if it's taking an investment in a company, which you think people would do in a very methodical, analytical way, we still want social proof. Yeah. Us humans, uh, I, 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 sometimes I just give up and trying to deal with humans. <laughs> Yeah, that was a big lesson and something that like I would take forward and anyone else, I guess, who's listening that's considering doing this is if you get that person that you can then point to and say, hey, we have Andreessen Horowitz or whatever, right, on board, then then the rest is quite a bit easier from there. So in traditional days, and by which I mean not COVID days, I guess something raising this amount of money would involve some in-person meetings, but were you able to do that? Yeah, a lot of Zoom meetings, but really not, not a ton. I mean maybe like four or five calls with with one investor was the most which which I don't think is that much okay and what were those calls like yeah i think you know at the beginning it's a lot of you know we put together a pitch deck right which is like 10 or 11 slides what who we are what we do where we are right now and the premise of of what we want to do and and why we want to raise money and what we do with it and do you send that to folks and then from there they say yeah i'm interested we should talk about it and then it's really kind of dissecting uh, and talking through those slides and just giving a lot more background and rationale about why you why you think and believe the things that you do. And yeah, I mean, that that was a lot of the process. And then, you know, some some of the investors want more information about your sales process and the enterprise that you're going into and, and kind of how how the unit economics of the business work and things like that. And so, you know, some mm-hmm. some light due diligence around around the business uh, happened in some cases, but it really was a lot of of kind of what's the premise of what you're wanting to raise around the details of that to, to various extents and then like how does the business work from a financial perspective and and how would this change it what about options you had i don't mean investment options but alternatives you had like this was not the only way you could have got money well you could have also decided not to raise money at all and just try to uh, run uh, as a continuing around as a bootstrapped basis 
But what about other ways of getting investment in the money, such as debt or a one-off investment uh, from somebody rich and who likes what you do? Yeah. Did you weigh these up and how did you decide to go with the one you went with? Yeah, absolutely. So I think on the debt side, it's a really attractive offer for a lot of reasons. If you look at folks like Lighter Capital, or founder path, you know, founder path and those being kind of like revenue based financing, lighter capital being a traditional like loan. The nice thing about that obviously is it's non dilutive, right? So you don't give up a percentage of your company. We were fortunate that like we're a relatively mature company to where raising the kind of money we did, I didn't have to give up a big old huge chunk uh, of the business. And so I, I don't know you know, kind of where that line is to where like giving up a relatively small chunk of equity for what to me is, is, is a bunch of money was a better deal than taking that as a loan that then you have to pay back, you know, you retain all your equity, but then like some of that debt kind of goes to service the debt, especially mm -hmm. in the early days, we kind of did some of that math and, and some of it's math and some of it's just a feeling, but, but felt like we could raise the money at such terms to where it made more sense than than taking debt. I think the other thing is, for me, debt is really good if the return is really, really sure. You know, like if you've proven this paid acquisition funnel and you know you put a dollar in here and you get $3 out there, but you need just more dollars to put the front end, mm -hmm. that's to me where debt makes good sense because you're getting paid back in a really sure way in, in a really certain time frame. You know, for us, this is frankly, you know, kind of new. <laughs> and so like it will take time and we don't want the, the time pressure of money on us to repay that debt right now. Okay. You mentioned one of those, so founder path and the other one, sorry, I didn't catch the name. Lighter capital. And you said one of them is is revenue-based financing. What does that mean? There are a couple different providers that, that offer revenue-based financing. One of them is Stripe. So Stripe does this, Founder Path does this, and there's another really popular one that, that's escaping me right now. But but they basically give you money up front and then take a percentage of all of your revenue over a period of time to get repaid. So if the business grows a lot, they're taking that same percentage and they you pay them back faster. I think in some cases they can fix the time and then the amount that you pay back goes up and down depending on your revenue as opposed to lighter capital, which is, hey, you pay 13% on this money and you pay it for two years and that's it. Okay, okay. Hey, what about your team? How do they, are you briefing them in on the whole process? They, if you're talking to me publicly, I guess your team also knows that you just landed three quarters of a million dollars in the bank account. Has it affected the way they go about their jobs or their view of the company? Yeah, I mean, they they joke with me a lot about like, hey, when's our team retreat? Are we staying at the Ritz? You know, the, those kind of things. But no, I think that like a lot of things, like try to be pretty open and honest with everybody about the business and where it is and, and things like this that we're doing to to make the business more healthy. And yeah, it's it's been it's been really well received. I think everybody is excited about the additional resources we have and what that can mean for for the team, you know, bringing on more developers, bringing on salespeople to drive revenue. Yeah, it's just, you know, if, I think for a lot of folks, it's more certainty, right? A bigger company almost always is is more stable. And, and that's what I think a lot of folks see with this. Okay. And nobody's saying like, Craig, about my wage, about my salary. Not yet. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> uh, I hope I'm not putting ideas in anybody's heads. <laughs> hey, I sometimes think maybe I shouldn't have done it that way. Perhaps I sh it, perhaps this wasn't the best thing to do. Is that going on? Buyer's remorse, so to speak. Yeah, no, but only because 
And I think we might have talked about this in a previous episode. And really, it's like why we joined Tiny Seed is is we just see this space as so dynamic and so much going on. You know, Amazon announced last week they bought Art19, one of our competitors. I mean, and when Amazon is buying companies in your business and Spotify yeah. bought two or three in the last couple of years, we just say, like, this is like a chance that we have to do something uh-huh. really special. And I want to do everything I can to maximize the chance of, of that being really special for me and now for our shareholders, for our team members and everything and for our customers. So I just think that as opposed to like I have a friend that runs accounting software. Hi, Paul. Uh, Paul runs less accounting. <laughs> like Paul is going to run less accounting and it's not going to change like forever, you know, yeah. and feature upvote, right? Feature upvote. Yeah. I mean, how, how much is the, or is the, the market and the dynamics of that business going to change in the next five years? Maybe not Very a lot, way, right? Hope. Yeah. 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 And, and you were, product. you were, you were pretty intentional about that. And so I think like, yeah. If we were in that space, I would absolutely have, you know, made it more of a lifestyle business and, you know, I could make the money I need to make and it's just this cash cow kind of thing. And I work 20 hours a week and all that. And we're just not in that business. And, and so like we, we kind of owe it to everybody to, to take this as seriously as we can. Not to say that bootstrapping doesn't take it seriously, but if you have the chance to get more resources on a company and it doesn't kill you emotionally or, or, you know, financially, then for us, it was a smart move at least. Craig, we've got a few minutes left and I'm going to switch to a different topic. I'm going to use this as a chance to talk to you as a podcaster to a person who runs a podcast hosting and analytics platform. So, and I know it's been done to death, but I'm curious how COVID has changed everything. Like myself, I think I saw a drop off in listens in the first weeks or months after COVID, but that's kind of, I can't really tell because I don't look at the big picture, but it kind of seems to have steadied itself. But what did you see as the person who owns a podcasting company? What did COVID do to the industry? Mm-hmm. To the industry on the listener side, we, we definitely saw that, right? That to shows like this and, and to like mine, listenership went down for the first few months, like maybe six months. But shows in genres like comedy or news, certain kinds of news, listenership went up a lot, right? So people's listening behaviors changed a lot. On the publishing side, and for us, like our customer side, things went up quite a bit at the beginning leveled off in terms of, you know, number of new, new trials and, and things like that. So like went up through the first few months leveled off and, and has really been pretty steady since then, not in the last couple months, but maybe in the quarter before that. So the first quarter of this year, and around the end of last year, we saw quite a bit of like, people tightening their belts. So being really kind of fiscally conscious, more so on our services side, which are, you know, in the hundreds of dollars a month kind of range. And so I think people, you know, taking a look at their expenses really happened then. Yeah, but I think that generally the thing we see is everybody realizes they're not going back to life as normal anytime soon. You know, conferences, we hear about conferences happening and the the big one in the podcasting space is next month. And I just say like, like we're not going because I'm not going to go to a conference with thousands of other people and either wear a mask and that's just weird, or not wear a mask and be around thousands of other people who may or may not be vaccinated. So like not to get COVID political or anything, but like, I think everybody looks at the idea of travel and conferences or even like in-person meetings. Like we have a lot, most all of the people on our team I've never met now, and we want to have a retreat. And we had one in Berlin two years ago. And like, we want to have another one. And now we're just asking like, can we do this? Like, can we responsibly do this 
financially, we can do it now, thankfully. But does it just make sense? Like, is it a smart thing kind of ethically and socially to do? And I'm kind of leaning to no still. And so the question is like, you know, there's the Delta variant and there's all this and there's the fourth wave. And like, when can we do it? If not now, like, when can we do it? When can you get back to life as normal? And I think everybody really, really wants to. But I think the reality is like, it's just not, we're not there yet. And I don't know when we will be. And so the new norm is, is something that people are adapting to. And and some kind of audio messaging has to fit into that because people are just tired of Zoom. Yeah. Okay. To go even further off the topic we're supposed to be talking about, with a, a team that's fully remote and many of whom you've never met, how are you going about team building, making that team cohesion and morale that comes from in-person retreats? Yeah. Spending a lot of, of time thinking and working on that. I mean, just on a, on a practical sense, we have a lot of meetings and maybe more meetings than we have to have. So we have kind of an all hands meeting on Monday where we kind of give updates and, and kind of just, it's a time to sync everybody up on the things that are important. And then each group, you know, marketing and sales support product have their own kind of group meetings throughout the week. I have one-on-ones with everyone on the team every other week. And so those are kind of scattered through the rotating two weeks. And then we do a thing on Fridays called co-working where we just fire up Zoom and it lasts for an hour or two and we just kind of sit around and BS about, you know, what's going on, a little bit of work. Or, hey, did you see this? Or, hey, can I get your help on this? But, but really, it's just, you know, talking about, you know, the kids and family and, you know, what we're mm-hmm. doing and, and things like that. So that's a really nice, the co-working is a really nice thing to to give us all just a chance to like, you know, have that social aspect no pressure it's optional people who want to pop in for a few minutes have to leave whatever that that's fine but but typically like more than half the team comes to it on a on a regular basis and that's really cool but it's hard it's taking a lot of intentionality which is very much worth it but but i wish we could just get together in person a couple times a year yeah that's great you probably heard about the base camp meltdown a month or two ago and i think Somebody very wise said, like, how much of that could have been avoided if they just had in-person meetups still going on? And it just makes it much easier to deal with interpersonal issues when when you've shared a beer or a team-building exercise or whatever, dinners with each other. Uh, It's really hard. Yeah. Really hard. Craig, let's wrap it up before we go from further off topic. So thanks again for being very, very willing to share so much internal information about your business, about your your straying even further from the path of a pure bootstrapper. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people go to learn more about you and your business or to get in touch? Yeah, so castos.com, C-A-S-T-O-S.com is the place to learn everything about what we do there. I'm on Twitter pretty infrequently, but feel free to DM me there. I'm the Craig Hewitt. Yeah, Steve, thanks for having me. It was really cool to, to be able to share what we've what we've learned and hopefully it's helpful to, to folks kind of listening and, and considering doing something similar. Anybody, you know, wants to chat about or has questions, just give me a shout. It was a pleasure. Bye, Craig. <laughs>